1: Folks, last week we, we started a series called Weathering Life with a Sovereign God. We are going through 1 Samuel, looking at the lives of various individuals there, and learning some lessons from their lives, but also learning about how God uses that or how God interacts with them, and that's especially true today. Last week we saw Hannah and her stigma and, and some... Guidance there about praying through the stigmas we have. This week we're going to look at a negative, I mean, a major negative example. It's two sons of Eli, the high priest, who should be serving the Lord. They are priests, but you're going to find out that things are not right with them, and then you're going to find out that God's not happy with them. And in fact, I'll be honest with you, when you look at this word, that we're going to look at today, some of you are going to be in conflict because as we look at it, we're going to be like, well, we know we live in the age of grace now. God forgives anything. Yeah, God does forgive anything. We do live in an age of grace, but God hasn't changed in his view of sin. And we're going to see that as we take a look at this passage this morning. So I want you to look with me. We're going to Break it up into a couple of sections. We're going to look at, first of all, to find out what's going on with the sons of Eli. And then we're going to look to see how God confronts it. Or what God says He's going to do about it. So I want you to notice with me, if you have your Bibles, let's look at verse 12. Now the sons of Eli were corrupt, they did not know the Lord. And the priest's custom with the people was that when any man offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come with a three-pronged flesh hook in his hand while the meat was boiling. Then he would thrust it into the pan or the kettle or the cauldron or pot, and the priest would take for himself all that the flesh hook brought up. So they did in Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Also, before they burned the fat, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who sacrificed, give meat for roasting to the priest, for he will not take boiled meat from you, but raw. And if the man said to him, they should really burn the fat first, then you may take as much as your heart desires, he would answer him, no, but you give it now, and if not, I will take it by force." Therefore the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, for the men abhorred the offering of the Lord. Now Eli was very old, but he had heard everything his sons did to Israel, and how they lay with the women who assembled at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all the people. No, my sons. For it is not a good report that I hear. You make the Lord's people transgress. If a man sins against another, God will judge him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who will intercede for him? Nevertheless, they did not heed the voice of their father, because the Lord desired to kill them. That's the first section. Let's look now at the next section. Then a man of God came to Eli, verse 27, and said to him, Thus says the Lord, did I not clearly reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt in Pharaoh's house? Did I not choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to offer upon my altar, to burn the incense and to wear an ephod before me? And did I not give to the house of your father all the offerings of the children of Israel made by fire? Why do you kick at my sacrifice and my offering which I have commanded in my dwelling place and honor your sons more than me to make yourself fat with the best of all the offerings of Israel, my people? Therefore, the Lord God of Israel says, I said indeed to your house and to the house of your father would walk before me forever. But now the Lord says, far be it from me For those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me I shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your arm and the arm of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house, and you will see an enemy in my dwelling place and despise all the good which God has done for Israel. And there shall not be an old man in your house forever." But any of your men whom I do not cut off from the altar shall consume your eyes and grieve your heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die in the flower of their age. Now this shall be a sign to you that will come upon your two sons, for on Hophni and Phanis, in one day they shall die, both of them, and I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him into a sure house, and he shall walk before my anointed forever. And it shall come to pass that anyone who is left in your house will come and bow down to him for a piece of silver and a morsel of bread and say, please put me in one of the priestly positions that I may eat a piece of bread. Wow, interesting. So let's take a look here. First thing we're going to see with the first section is religious unbelief. Religious unbelief. This passage is going to illustrate that as you go throughout life and as you interact with people, you're going to find that a lot of people, I hate to say this, are very religious but are very much don't believe anything. Ever met people like that? Ever met people, they know the answers, they know how to answer the answers, they, they can do the right stuff, they give. I mean, they give, they attend, But their hearts are so far from the Lord. That's called religious unbelief. The sad thing is, is that some of them are in pulpits. Some of them are in churches serving in ministry positions. In fact, they were serving in ministry positions here in this passage, weren't they? They were the priests of God. Now, I'm going to point out four things to you about religious unbelief. Because the fact of the matter is, is you need to grasp this, is that not everybody believes, even if they come to church. In fact, Jesus even pointed that out to us. We'll see that here in a moment. Here's what I want you to see. First of all, you can be religious and still not believe. Okay, so how do I get that? Well, look there, first of all, at verse 12. It talks about the two sons of Eli. It says that they were priests, they served the Lord. But notice something, verse 12, it's a very haunting statement to me, that it says, but they did not know the Lord here they are they're serving god in the temple making sacrifices daily but the one statement is, is they didn't know who god was and that word know is not that they didn't understand who god was it's not even that they didn't have any mental facts about the existence of god it's that they didn't know him personally they didn't have a personal relationship with him and you need to grasp that simply the fact of being religious is not enough. You can be religious, but you still possibly cannot maybe believe. Is that possible, George, in a church? Yes. Jesus gave this interesting parable. He talked about that someone went out, a sower went out and sowed seed, but that evening an enemy went out and sowed what? Tears among the wheat. And so weeds grew up. And so the angel said, well, you know, do you want us to separate them? He said, no, lest you uproot one of those who th- will separate them in the end, in the judgment. So, folks, I need you to understand, it is a fact that even among us today in our church, and churches across the world, there are unbelievers among us. And they think they're okay. Why? Because they're doing all the right stuff. Because they have all the right beliefs. But in their hearts, they don't know Jesus. They don't truly believe. They're here for their own reasons. What kind of reasons are you talking about? Well, I'm coming to the church because this is where my mama went, and my grandmama, and great-great-grandmama. That's not a good enough reason to come to church. You come to church because what? You know Jesus and want to hang out with what? People who know Jesus. I'm just being honest with you. It's not because of belief because we believe in God. It's because of what? It's because we're into religion. Here's the second thing I want you to see. It's reflected in a flippancy towards God. The unbelief, even though they're religious, it's reflected in a flippancy. Do you know what I'm talking about? A flippancy. Things aren't sacred to them things aren't sacred we see that here that's illustrated in verse 17 where it talks about how they abhorred the sacrifice of God yes the, the Israelites would come and make the sacrifice and there were certain procedures about what the priests were to do with the sacrifice what portion of the sacrifice they were to keep for themselves and they basically decided we want it all we want it all for ourselves we we, we don't really care what God said we're just going to do it our way and so sometimes what you see there is is that the unbelief that's expressed in religious actions is actually expressed with a flippancy towards God. Things aren't sacred, so we joke about stuff that we shouldn't be joking about. We treat people the way they shouldn't be treated, because God's Word tells us to treat others in a certain way, but we don't do that because we're, we're flippant about the things of God. That's all, can I be honest with you, that's all an evidence of what? Unbelief. Unbelief. Now, let me just stop for a moment. Through the years, I have, I've, I've I've struggled with people intellectually because they'll say to me, and listen, I'm going to be honest with you, we believe in eternal security here. What does that mean? That if you truly know Jesus Christ, you are eternally secure in him, and you will be with him when you die. You're not going to lose your salvation, okay? We believe that very strongly here. But I'm going to tell you something. Just because somebody prayed a prayer doesn't mean they're saved. Just because somebody got baptized, even if I baptized them, doesn't mean they're saved. Just because they gave money to the offering doesn't mean they're saved. Do you understand what I'm saying? Just because they can, quote, answer any kind of Bible trivia question doesn't mean they're saved. That's not what saves you is any of that. What saves you is personal faith. And when you get saved, folks, you change. Well, yeah, I know what you're talking about. This guy said he got saved, but he's still drinking, so he must not be saved. No, 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 wait a minute. It's not as obvious as you think it is. God doesn't work in someone's heart. It takes a little bit of time to go through it. But you can tell by their attitude towards what they're doing. Are they flipping about it, or are they serious about changing it? Do you understand what I'm saying? Because you just can't overcome stuff in your daily life just like that. The issue is, are they saved? And not everyone who does all that is necessarily saved. Do you understand what I'm saying? But those who are saved are secure. You say, well, what about me? Well, that's where you have to do some introspection in your own heart. Do I own the faith myself? So it's reflected in a flippancy towards God. Here, here's the other thing you can tell with unbelief that's religious. It uses religion to fulfill selfish desires i'm going to be honest with you folks we see that here it's pointed out that basically the priests were just using their faith verse 22 especially they were using their position so that they could get to the ladies and have wrong relationships with them they were doing it for their own selfish desires for what they could get out of it now here's the thing i need you to understand church is a wonderful place everybody agree with that Church being with people is a wonderful place, but church is also a place where people with the wrong motives can come in and use the goodness of people's hearts in a believing community for their own purpose. Has anybody ever seen that? I have, but that's one extreme. But we see that all the time. Here's the other extreme. People who show up in church who like, because you can be a big fish in a small pond, right? And their reason for coming to church is not because they love Jesus or want to serve Jesus. It's because they can be somebody in a church, right? Because we're always looking for somebody who wants to serve, right? We're always looking for somebody that wants to do something. And it's very possible that your motivation for being in church has nothing to do with loving God and loving the people of God and being with the people of God. But it has to do with what? Stroking your ego. You ever met people through the years that their whole purpose in coming to church was to what? Stroke their ego. And it comes out after a while, doesn't it? You can see it because you've got all these other factors, flippancy towards the things of God. They're religious, but their life doesn't add up. Do you understand what I'm saying? That's very true with these sons of Eli. One other thing I want you to see here. One final thing I want you to see about this religious unbelief. It's not responsive to correction. So their daddy, Eli, says, look, guys, what you're doing is not right. You know, he even tells them, you know what, it's one thing if you sin against man. God is the one who judges. There, there's always a way out if I do, do do wrong to somebody else. But if you do wrong to God, who can intercede for you? If you do wrong to God, you need to recognize that God's going to take matters into his own hands. And guess what they did? It's like, oh, sure, dad, wonderful, because they don't believe do you understand what I'm saying? They don't believe. So they're not going to hear because they don't understand. Eli comes to them and says, boys, you shouldn't be doing this. This is terrible. God's going to deal with you. Who cares, dad? Because they don't believe. So they don't think there's any real consequences. That's religious unbelief, folks. So here's, the, here's what it is. You, you want to put one statement down with this last point where it says you're not responsive to correction? Here, just, just write one word down. Unaccountable. They're accountable to nobody. They think they're okay. You know, through the years, folks, I have seen so many different things that have been reflective of this religious unbelief. I can remember a person who came into church And and their whole thing, when you listen to their story, they they, they express some things that they were deeply regretful in their life, some sin issue. And then when you look at them, they would come and say, well, why aren't we tightening up on how people are dressing here? Why aren't we doing something about the music? Why aren't we carrying the right Bible? And here's what I realized. Legalism is the perfect cover for unbelief. You want to write that down? legalism is the perfect cover for unbelief. Because with legalism, all that matters, it doesn't matter where your heart is, it matters what you're doing, where you're going. It doesn't matter about anything else about if you have a right heart or a right mind, it has to do with are you doing the right thing? Are you giving enough money? Are you showing up every time you're supposed to be here? Are you carrying the right Bible? Does your hair look the right way? Do you not have a beard? Because you know if you have a beard, there's something wrong with you. See, it's a perfect cover for what? Unbelief. That's what religious unbelief is. And in this person's life I was thinking about, they could appease their mind that they were okay with God because they were doing the right things. That, my friends, is a false gospel. Because the only way to gain acceptance with Jesus is what? Accept Jesus for what he did for you not because what you've done for yourself. Do you understand? Because you can't do anything for yourself. We all know that, right? I mean, you can't do anything for your salvation. Only Jesus can do stuff for your salvation. But you know what? When you talk to somebody who's in religious unbelief, who does not know the Lord, they're not responsive to correction. They're not. So that brings us to how does God respond to that? And folks, you've got to understand this one. You've got to grasp it. God is not mocked. That's what we're going to see here with the interaction. Because there comes a man of God, a prophet comes and talks to the priest, and he's basically saying to Eli, Eli, God is not mocked. Sometimes you and I need to understand that because sometimes I know that in we can lose our minds sometimes, even as, as believers, and think, well, you know, I'm forgiven, I'll, you know, I'll be okay. no, no. God's not mocked. There is a consequence for things. And so I want you to see what's happening here. We see it again from the statements here that are made. First of all, the Lord reminds them of his purpose. That's what's going on here in verses 27 to 28. God reminds Eli of his whole purpose of establishing the priesthood. And that he is the one who chose Eli's family, Eli's forefathers, Aaron, and the prodigy that would happen afterwards to serve before him. And he reminds them of the agreement that as they served, God would provide for their needs through the sacrifice if they just did what he told them to do. God reminds them of his purpose. That's the first thing you've got to recognize. God's not mocked. He's going to remind us. Of what our purpose is and I'm gonna be honest with you folks listen to what I'm going to tell you your salvation isn't just so that you could go be with Jesus later on and everything be okay by and by that's not the issue you were saved for a purpose what purpose to serve him where where you work where you live in the family unit that you're in, in the community that you're a part of, in the club that you belong to, in the hunting group that you belong to. It is so that you could serve him there as his servant. You were saved for a purpose now. And he's reminding you of that. You just can't go off and do your own thing. But that's a lot of what we have going on here. In fact, I forgot to tell you this earlier. We're dealing with a period of time that the book of Judges says where everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That's pretty much a description of Christianity today in North America, where everyone does what is right in their own eyes. Well, aren't you talking legalism, George? No, no, I'm not talking legalism. I'm just talking about doing what God tells you to do. So the Lord reminds them of his purpose. Here's the second thing I want you to see. The Lord reveals corrupt priorities. God has a way of revealing when people are doing it for the right reasons and when people are doing it for the wrong reasons. You know, as I get older, and especially as I've been serving him longer and as I've walked with him for a long time now, I'm not surprised anymore. Back, I remember when I was a young Christian... Some of you, are. this is before your time, but some of you are old enough to remember scandals of 1987. Okay, Remember that? I was a young believer then, and I was like, what? Are you kidding me? And, and, but you know what? That was 1987. Here we are, 2019, 32 years later, and there's been how many more scandals since then? How many more servants who've been revealed to not be where they should be? Who were doing it for their own reasons and so forth? Why? Because God exposes them. And you know what? As I think about it, it's not just preachers. I've thought about it through the years in church that ultimately God ends up exposing people even in church who are doing it for the wrong reasons. It's about what they want. Not about what the whole church is good for the church. It's about what they want, their preference. That tells you right off the bat that they're doing it for what? Their own selves, their own purpose. See, God reveals corrupted priorities. He's going to show you you're, you're, you're not right in this area. You're doing it for the wrong reasons. And aren't we like that? Here's the third thing I want you to see here about the Lord. The Lord reveals the nature of the sin. We see that in verse 29. He says that what they're doing, look at verse 29. It says, why do you kick at my sacrifice and my offering, which I have commanded in my dwelling place, and honor your sons more than me, to make yourselves fat with the best of all the offerings of Israel, my people? He's saying, look, you're not doing this for me. You're doing it for yourself. You're doing it for what you can get out of it. That's what God's doing when he reveals the nature of our sin. In fact, that's a good definition of all sin. Sin is where you think you know better than God and you're doing it for who? Yourself, rather than for the Lord, right? That's what sin is. Sin at that moment when you do wrong is because you decided at that moment that your thinking and your whatever you wanted is more important than what God said. And here's the crazy thing about it with sin. You sin unintentionally. That's just our bent. We have a bent towards thinking that we know better. So the Lord reveals the nature of sin. Now here's the final thing I want you to see. This is is where you and I have to grasp this. Because we live in an era where we don't want to communicate this. The Lord reveals that there will be a reckoning. in the sons of Eli, God says, I'm going to kill them. They're going to be punished. There's a reckoning. Folks, you need to hear me. Because sometimes, even believers, we can get to an attitude that I'll just keep doing this, I'll keep doing this, and there's no reckoning. There's forgiveness, there's forgiveness. No, no, there's a reckoning. Yes, there's forgiveness in Jesus, but he doesn't remove the reckoning. There's a forgiveness in Jesus, but he doesn't remove the consequences. Do you understand what I'm saying? There's a reckoning. And that's true for unbelievers as well. There is a reckoning. We are accountable, whether we want to be accountable or not. And one day, I, th- I think I was—I think I may have been listening to somebody's discussion when I was here during Sunday school. There is going to be—I think I heard somebody say this about everyone will bow the knee and confess that he is Lord. Everyone, if I'm the ardent—you listen to watch the news and you see the most ardent atheist out there— one day he's going to bow the knee. Because one day, his mind is going to wake up to the reality of who Jesus is, and he's going to submit. Everybody's accountable. Everybody. There's a reckoning that's coming. You say, okay, George, wow, you know, I came in here today last week. was so encouraging. We're about a hand out working through the stigma. What do I take home from this today? I want to point out one more thing to you because maybe you're here and you're saying, okay, yeah, you know what, George, I am going through the motions, and yeah, I'm really concerned about that reckoning thing. I want to give you something to grab a hold of. If you look at the passage, if you look at verse 35, it says this, then I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. I will build him a sure house, and he shall walk before my anointed forever. Now, it's real easy if you're reading that passage, because we've been talking about Samuel, that you're thinking to yourself, well, that must be Samuel he's talking about. No, it's not Samuel. Well, it's kind of a precursor to David, so maybe it's David he's talking about. Well, a descendant of David. But who he's talking about here is that God's going to raise up for himself a faithful priest. Who is that? Hebrews tells you who the faithful priest is, folks. Jesus. So even in this message here of condemnation, even in this message of rebuke, God holds out, listen to me, God holds out what? Hope. Hope. What does that mean? Well, it means that if you recognize that you're not where you're at, or where you should be, or if it means that you recognize, well, I don't really believe. Is there hope for me? Yes, there is hope. Why? Because there's Jesus. He's the faithful priest who will be established for what? Ever and ever and ever. And that's where our hope needs to be, right? With Jesus. I pray that's where your hope is. Whether you're going through the motions or whether you don't believe but want to believe. Even if you do believe, that's where your hope should be, right?
0: Thank you for being with us this morning. And we trust that today's message has been both challenging and an encouragement to your heart. this coming week.